Hey guys, as we get started, I just want to say thank you one more time to the hundreds of you who joined us last night at our kickoff event. To our credible worship band, you have my profound gratitude. You worked so hard on this, each one of you, those on stage, behind the stage, you serve God so well. You lead us towards him every week in new and wonderful ways. And to the incredible volunteers and the staff of this church who served last night, as Jesus would likely say, to you one another, so many others. Thank you for showing us with your time and your energy, your work, your smiles, the tangible love of God. I am, we are so grateful that you don't just go to church, but that you are the church. Now, if you weren't here on campus last night with us, the band premiered the final summer song of the season, another iconic classic, Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. That song came out in 1986, which makes me feel really, really old. This little ditty, if you think about it, is really more anthem than song. We love it because it's so symbolic of so many of our own stories. I mean, you know, Tommy used to work on the docks, but the union's been on strike. He's down on his luck. It's tough. It's, like, really tough. He's got this girlfriend, Gina, and she works at the diner all day. She does it for Tommy, and, and she brings home her pay, well, for love. And when she gets home, and they're both dead tired, kind of half-defeated, she puts her head on, her, on his shoulder, and she whispers to him. Well, you know what she whispers to him, Tommy. we got to hold on to what we've got. It doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. She goes on, Tommy, we're halfway there. We're living on a prayer. Take my hand. We'll make it, I swear. Whoa, living on a prayer. Now, come on. Who has not belted out this with the band or in a car? There's a little bit of Tommy and Gina in all of us. But, I mean, I just have one question. We're halfway where? We'll make it, I swear. That's awesome. I'm filled with hope again now. Where are we making it to? Because it seems that the destination is the point of the prayer I'm living on. You know, sung this a million times, never realized that not once in the whole song do they actually reveal where they're trying to make it to. I mean, I'm just keeping it simple, right? What prayer am I living on? Where am I trying to get to? And how do I get there if I don't know where it is I'm trying to go? Now, I know, I know. Joan, my wife, has said this to me a thousand times. John, why do you have to overthink everything? Just shut up and sing. You're ruining a good song. Well, this whole thing got me thinking about living on a prayer. And what if we were praying for it? Or what it is we are praying for it? Where is it that we're all trying to get to? And why does this song resonate so much? Now, look, it's easy to misunderstand prayers and their goals. I've done it. It can be awkward. I remember one Sunday after church, I'd gotten done preaching and, and said I was going to be sticking around up front. If anybody wanted to come up and, and be prayed for, they should come and I would pray with them. And this guy came up. I think he was a new guy. I hadn't seen him before. And he said to me, John, I, I really need you to pray for my hearing. So I, was, I remember it. I, I, I knelt down with him and I, I put my hands out and I placed them over his ears. And I prayed that God would heal him and restore his hearing. And I prayed for a while, like a long time. And when we finished, I asked him if anything had improved, how his hearing was now after all this prayer. And he looked at me kind of confused, and he said, John, I don't know what you're talking about. My hearing isn't until Wednesday. Do you see 
how important it is to know what it is that you're praying for. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and the disciples who had seen how fervent and effectual his prayers were, they came to him and they asked him to teach them to pray like he did. Now, most of you know what he taught them. He said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I know we pray this all the time, right? Like everyone seems to know this prayer, Christian or not. It's like iconic. It actually reminds me a lot of Bon Jovi's anthem. We all say it, we all sing it, but what is it that we're actually praying for? Where is it we're trying to go? What are we living on if we're living on this prayer? Well, Jesus said, Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, because we don't have the background that the disciples had, we didn't grow up in, in first century Jerusalem. We were not schooled in the law and the prophets from the time we could walk. We had not memorized the Torah by the age of 10, like most of the men Jesus was talking to likely had. What Jesus is telling them to pray for, they understood in a way we don't. They understood it too because they'd heard him talk about this same concept again and again and again. When we pray it, unfortunately, it tends to go right over our heads. It's kind of like singing it about a place that never is identified. Well, here Jesus tells us to pray for a place, a kingdom that we don't really understand. It's not identified. But, but, I'm telling you, when we get it, when we understand it, well, I, I think it can become a wonderful new anthem for our church, a vision, if you will, a great invitation for all of us this kickoff weekend to each and every one of us to get to the place where we really all do want to go. And I'm going to give you one hint about that place before we get started. It's not that far away. It's really, really close. So, let me ask you a question. You know how I always ask you when we read the scriptures, don't just read them, but enter the story. Put yourself there. And so this morning, I want to do that. I want you to imagine yourself in first century Israel. You're a good God-fearing person of the Jewish faith and descent, but you find yourself, as the nation of Israel often had, under oppression. For Israel in the past, it had been the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Uh, this time, Israel's current oppressor and occupier is the Roman Empire. And you live under their boot, under their authority. They extort you and your family for taxes at whatever rate they deem that, that you owe. They proclaim, both on the streets and even on their own coins, that Caesar and not Yahweh is Lord. But this is your plight. It's your life. You are, in the words of Bon Jovi, just trying to hold on to what you've got. Maybe you're living on a prayer. Well, into your world, word begins to get. Well, it gets around that there's a young kind of hotshot rabbi who goes by the name of Jesus that seems to be teaching the books of the law and the prophets that you're so familiar with in new ways and in powerful ways. He seems to command both a knowledge and a power that no other teacher ever has. It, it's, it's not just his teaching that people are talking about. They're talking about his presence. 
about his authority, his power, that people who are going and encountering him are coming away different, changed, some of them healed. The blind, the word on the street is, are beginning to see and the lame are beginning to walk. And this rabbi, he seems to be bringing this hope and this healing, well, to everyone, like to the sinners and to the saints, to the outcasts and to those in the in-group. He doesn't see the labels that everybody else seems to. Well, you decide that you're going to go check him out for yourself. And so you saddle up the donkey, you grab some water and food for the full day's journey, and you stumble in at, at nightfall into Galilee looking for this Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you begin to ask around town where he is, where you might find him. And it seems like everybody knows because there's always this big crowd following him. And so you look for the crowd, and when you find it, you push your way in, right? You make your way up to the front, maybe to the window of the house that Jesus is speaking in, and you began to listen in. Now, are you with me in this story? Can you maybe feel the shoulders being squished, your shoulders being squished by the crowds? The dust from the ground between you and the sandals, are your, you and the sandals uh, on your feet? Now, if you're there in your mind, here's the question as you're listening in. What is Jesus saying? What is he talking to them about? It's super interesting to think about, isn't it? I mean, what is it that you would imagine him saying? Tim Mackey, some of you know him from the Bible Project, he's got a really good observation about this question. He says that what you think you hear Jesus saying actually will tell you a lot about what you think of Jesus. In other words, what you think you might be hearing Jesus say, it'll tell you a lot about what you think about Jesus right now. Now, since we're online and not in person, I can't ask you to write down what you think you're hearing and pass it up. But if you're like me and most others, there's some common guesses, right? You might think, well, I mean, Jesus has a lot of, a lot of memorable teachings. Maybe he's talking about one of those. Maybe he's talking about the golden rule or to do unto, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Maybe he's saying one of his radical things like love your enemy or turn the other cheek. Maybe you've guessed that he's telling stories and parables like he always did. Maybe you walked right in in the middle of the story of the prodigal son. Perhaps he's teaching people not to be afraid. Jesus talked about that a lot. I think a lot of us might guess that he's talking about dying and giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, while it's true that Jesus did say all of those things, and you might very well have heard him saying any one of them, but, but, hear me on this, all of those things are mere pieces in a puzzle, if you will. Puzzle pieces that when joined together reveal the thing that Jesus was always talking about. All of these teachings and stories and parables that we're all so familiar with, they're all like trees in the forest of Jesus's one preeminent teaching. The thing that was always on his lips. The things that he began most of his stories with. The thing that was his big overarching theme, it was his core message. In fact, it was his first theme and his first message. In fact, I'm going to go even further. What you would likely hear Jesus preach if you spent any amount of time at that window was what Jesus would have. What Jesus did say was what he called the gospel, the good news. In fact, 
his good news. Do you know what Jesus said the gospel was? Well, it's likely not what you think. Jesus says it had something to do with what he called the kingdom of God. Now, in the NIV translation of your Bible, if you use that translation, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, or or as Matthew called it, the kingdom of heaven, well over a hundred times. In Matthew alone, he refers to it over 50 times. You literally can't miss it. But somehow, we just see trees, not forests. Mark. Mark wrote one of the four Gospels, right? Mark wrote down what he learned from Jesus' disciple Peter, likely at towards the end of Peter's life. And he tells us in chapter 1, this is the primacy of this message, Mark starts with the story of John the Baptist and him baptizing Jesus. And you know what Jesus' very first words are? Remember, John said that he had come preparing the way for the Lord. Jesus' ministry starts after John baptizes them, and here comes his first teaching. He stands up and he says, the time has come. You've been preparing for it. The time has finally come. It's now. I'm here. Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, repent. Fancy religious word for change the way you think. It's actually a word that calls for a decision. You you need to decide to think differently. Decide the direction you're going to go in and believe. You need to decide to think differently and believe differently about what? About what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Repent and believe, Jesus says, the good news. The euangelio in the Greek, which means the gospel. Hear me now. For Jesus, the gospel, the good news was that the kingdom of God had come near. You see it again in Matthew. Jesus begins his ministry. First thing he does, even before he calls any disciples, Matthew writes, from that time, the time that John had baptized them, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is, my friends, the message of Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news that Jesus has and shares over and over and over. The good news of the kingdom of God. More than half of the parables are about the kingdom of God. You know them. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. The kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure. The kingdom of God is like yeast. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The first century physician, Luke, who researched all of the things Jesus said and did. He writes that Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, as people were trying to get him to stay at the home of Simon, where he'd been healing people, Jesus says, I can't stay here. I must proclaim the good news. There it is again. I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Do you hear that now? Jesus was sent to do what? Why did he come? Jesus came and was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, you think, Jesus said then, the first thing that you, uh, excuse me, I want you to think from now on, when you think of Jesus, the first thing that has to pop into your mind 
It, it isn't, but it should, is the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. It's close. Now, again, this would have had significant meaning for his first century audience. They got something, their jaws dropped open. This was to them good news. They understood that it was really good news. Why don't we? Why do we read that and yawn? What are we missing? I mean, in America in 2021, is it, I mean, can it still be good news to us, the kingdom of God? Well, what's the one thing every kingdom's got to have? Well, got to have a king, right? Got to have a ruler, somebody is in charge. Now, most of you know this, but often we don't string these things together. One of the things that they got that we miss is the concept of a king and a kingdom, of a rule and a people, if you will. It's their story of origin. It's the story of their people. It's the story of our origin. The story of a king and a kingdom, of rules and rulers. It's as old as time itself. Genesis chapter 2, God, the ultimate authority and king, creator of everything that ever was or is, after creating all of it, he makes man in his image to bear his image and reflect his image, and he sets man up on this earth in the garden. And then, this is unbelievable. Listen to what God says to him. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. Rule. Over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God says, I'm I'm making you kings and queens of this place. You're going to rule. You're going to reign. I want you to rule this place on my behalf, under my authority, in my ways, reflecting my image, who I am. That was the first kingdom. And you and I, at least our ancestors, were given the power to rule it on God's behalf. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know how this rule goes. Man, not happy to image God and his rule, rebels because we de desire not to image God's rule, not to rule on his behalf, but to decide for, well, in that case, themselves, and in our case, ourselves, what's right and what's wrong. We don't want to rule on anybody else's behalf. We want to rule on our own. And a second kingdom becomes initiated. A kingdom in the scriptures known as the kingdom of man or, or the kingdom of this world. That's where we reign where we're in charge. Guys, this is the kingdom in which you and I live right now, the kingdom of this world. It was initiated long ago, and it rolls on today. Honestly, it's the answer to almost every question of why God. The answer is not God's kingdom. It's ours. Now again, I'm so indebted to the Bible Project guys for how they string the story of the scriptures together into one narrative. The reason that there are so many pages in your Bible, and it doesn't just end at page three where that event happened, is that God, out of his deep, deep love for his people, God does not leave it this way. God does not give up on his creation or his kingdom. He does not pick up his ball and go home. God decides to call to himself to form for himself a new people and to create out of them a new nation with a new king, him. He begins with Abraham, but you actually see this new kingdom that God is starting. It comes to a crescendo in the story of Moses and the Exodus. God calls his people from one king, a pharaoh, and one a kingdom, Egypt. Moses tells Pharaoh on God's behalf, 
let my people, hear that? My people, let my people go. Why? Because he's their king and he's bringing them to a new kingdom where they're going to be his people and he will be their king. God calls these people out of Egypt and at the foot of Mount Sinai where they begin to sing to him and about him at the, as, as king for the first time. God on that mountain gives them the laws of this new kingdom. You know them as the commandments. But this is the, essentially the story of a king explaining to a new nation that he's forming, his people, how to live with him as king, how to live under his rule. See, you see, Israel's now to live under God's reign once again. And they are once again to reflect and to image to the world what, what God looks like. How does Israel do? Well, many of you know the story. And this is why your Bible is so, so thick. They do a terrible job. Instead of reflecting and imaging God to a needy world, they ignore the needs of the world and the rule of God and do all of the same things. They act in the same way as the kingdom of the world. They oppress the poor. They carry out misjustice on the weak. They make for themselves idols. They worship things of the earth. Think of like what we do with money. And they run this kingdom of God, this new kingdom, into the ground too. In fact, they wind up being crushed again and again by powerful enemies that God's, God allows to rise up against them. And things for Israel are once again, in many ways, if not most ways, no different than they were in Egypt. Yet, yet. And again, this is why your Bible is so thick. There were these prophets people like Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and they would prophesy about a day to come where one day this would change, a day where God would one more time take his world back, where he would again be their king and they would be his people and they would live with him and under his loving authority. In fact, Isaiah, one of those prophets, he writes this beautiful poem. He paints a wonderful scene. There are just a few people now left in Jerusalem. The city's just been ransacked. It lies in ruins. And there is a sense almost like of a watchman on, on the towers or what's left of the walls. And, and this watchman sees this man running towards the city, and the man is screaming, proclaiming news. Now, after all that's happened, you've got to imagine it's likely more bad news, but Isaiah writes of this messenger... How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. Did you hear that? Good news, who bring a gospel. And what is the good news? What is this gospel? Who proclaim salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Once again, he will be your king. You will be his people. You will be reclaimed from the kingdoms of this earth and restored to the kingdom of God where everything will once again be made right. And it is all these stories that all of these first century disciples know. It's this promise of Isaiah's, this hope of a new king and a new kingdom. They've grown up singing about it. They've prayed about it in the temple and they've been hoping for. And then Jesus shows up and he says, folks, I have really good news. It's here, the kingdom. It's now, it's come. Repent, change the way you're thinking. 
and believe. Stop thinking in old kingdom ways. Think new. Think about different things. Think about this new kingdom and believe in me and my kingdom. Now, you can follow the story in your Bible at home. It's so interesting. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus proclaims that this is his gospel. What's the first thing Jesus does after proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is here, that he's the new king? Well, a new kingdom needs, a new king needs a, a new people. Matthew tells us right after proclaiming the good news of his kingdom that Jesus saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Guys, this is a king forming a new people. What are the people he calls doing? What decisions do they need to make? They're changing the way they think, the way they live, the way they act. They're even leaving families. Why? Because they believe that Jesus is the king and that the kingdom that he is inviting them into to live in is better. They believe that it's better than the one they're in now. You see that? Now, what happens next? Jesus goes throughout Galilee, and what's he do? He does three things. He teaches in their synagogues, proclaiming, okay, pop quiz. Jesus is teaching in their synagogues. What do you think Jesus is proclaiming in those synagogues? In fact, proclaiming everywhere he went. Any guesses? The good news, the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and sickness among the people because this is what it looks like when God takes over the kingdom of this world. And so now, now we have a king and a new kingdom. We have a new people who think differently, who, who make a choice to live. What to live like citizens of a new kingdom? Let me ask you a question. Do you know how this kingdom, this new kingdom, is different from the old kingdom? Do you understand what God's rule and reign look like for those who would choose to follow? Well, maybe it's funny we ask the question because next, here comes Jesus' longest single discourse, the longest teaching he has in the scriptures. We know it is the Sermon on the Mount. And why is he doing this? I'll tell you why, because he is laying out what God's rule and reign in this new kingdom with these new people is going to look like. You know, in God's kingdom, when he reigns, where he reigns, blessed are the poor. In God's kingdom, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. I mean, in the kingdom of God, we do diff different things than they do in the kingdom of the world. In the kingdom of God, we don't curse our enemies, we love our enemies. In the kingdom of God, our yes means yes and our no means no. In the kingdom of God, we, we don't do eye for an eye. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, we turn to them the other. Jesus goes on and on in this brand new kingdom. We don't practice our righteousness for others to see, but instead we give to the needy without making sure everybody knows. In this kingdom, we don't worry all the time about our lives or what we have to eat or drink or wear because we know our Father, the King, will provide. In this kingdom, we, we don't judge other people. We don't have time for that. We're too busy looking for the speck in our own eye. I mean, in this kingdom, 
We forgive not once or twice. We forgive as we've been forgiven. Start thinking about this, right? Parable of the Good Samaritan is nothing more than a kingdom story. Parable of the prodigal son is nothing more than a kingdom story. Do you start to see it? Are the trees starting to form the forest? Do you get it? Guys, see, this is why Jesus said, once you find this kingdom, it'll become for you the pearl of great price. It'll become for you like a treasure in the field. Once you taste it, you would do anything. You would sell anything. You would repent and believe in order just to get it. What is the way to the kingdom of God? Well, according to Jesus, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He is the way. It's a believing. It's in believing in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which pays the price due our sins, that allows us to enter in as these new creatures into this kingdom, this new kingdom. And when you do this, when you believe Jesus promises that you, within your chest, within you will begin to live the Holy Spirit of God, and, and he will lead you into kingdom behavior, right kingdom living. This is not about being good, but about being a citizen of a different nation. Which gets me back to that prayer. And when you pray, pray asking, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see this now? See, what the disciples would have understood that we missed. Guys, the kingdom of God is not up there or, or over there. Now, it's not here yet in its fullness. Understand that. It will one day be made complete. It is not here in completion. That day will come. But the kingdom of God has begun where this is so good where because people back then were just as confused about this as, as we can be jesus is walking around saying the kingdom of god is here the kingdom of god is near but for everybody in israel rome was still in charge check this out once on being asked by the pharisees when the kingdom of god would come jesus replied the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or, or there it is, because the kingdom of God, where is it, guys? Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Other translations say it's within you. Of course it is. Repent and believe this good news. See, the prayer Jesus wants to be living on is not holding on to what we got because we're halfway there. Jesus says, let go of everything you've got because if you repent and believe, you are already there. I believe that our prayer as we start a new ministry season this year is, and I think we should make a sign out of this. I saw, actually, I saw this at my son's church in New York City. It's, it's so good. I think our vision for 2021-22 should be something like in Mendham as it is in heaven. In Chester 
as it is in heaven, in Long Valley as it is in heaven, in Randolph as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus is teaching us to pray. That is our prayer. God, your kingdom come where your presence resides and your rule reigns and your will be done in Mendham and in Chester and in my job and in my home and in my heart as in heaven. Church, do you know what we are? And forget politics on this for a moment, but I just want to help you see this. Whatever your political nature is, we could all agree that none of us like the fact that Americans were left in Afghanistan, right? We not only left them behind, we closed up the embassy. There is no presence of the United States there anymore. There is, in that dark place, no beacon of light or hope. There is now nowhere for those left behind to go and find and live under the rule of the law of America. Did you know that on embassy grounds, rules are different? If the Americans could have gotten there before they closed the embassy, once they were there, well, then they were under the reign of another kingdom and another king. The U.S. kingdom would have applied. The U.S. rules and rulers would have been in place. Within that embassy, people act different than outside because they're citizens of a different country. But now, there's nobody to help those that were left find their way home. Church, do you know what we are? I mean, here's the vision. We are an embassy of a different kingdom. Right here in Mendham and in Chester, we are a beacon of light and hope for those who are trapped in a kingdom that they want out of. I mean, here, in this place, on this land, amongst these people, the ground rules are different. When they walk in, they notice things. We, we live under different laws in different ways. Here we act differently. And you know why? Because we're citizens of a different country. And we have a duty. The scriptures actually say we're ambassadors. We're helping others find their way home. I, I'm going to close with this. It's regarding this topic uh, of the kingdom and where it is and how far away it is. Most of us grow up thinking that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it, it's beyond the clouds and, and one day we'll get there or one day it'll come. But Mark records a different kind of story. One of the teachers of the law came to Jesus and asked him about the commandments. And, and he said, which is the most important one? If you think about it, it's a kingdom question, right? And so Jesus answers about his kingdom. He says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. These are the rules of Jesus' reign. What's amazing, it, it, I don't know if you've ever picked this up, this teacher of the law, this likely Pharisee, he's not here trying to trip Jesus up. It seems like he's starting to get it because he replies, well said, teacher, you're right. In saying that God is one and there is no other but him, to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding and with all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes with this, and this is crazy. He says, this is all more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is radical thinking for a guy steeped in the sacrificial systems. 
because he used to believe in burnt offerings and sacrifices, but now it looks like he's changing his mind, and it's starting to believe differently. He's repenting and believing. And you know what Jesus does? The scriptures say that when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, and I can't help but wonder if Jesus almost pulled him closed. Because for, for, for this man, this pronouncement, it was dangerous. I could kind of see Jesus pulling him close and whispering in his ear, kind of like Lisa did to Tommy. But Jesus instead says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Mandem, may it be said to of us, you guys are not far from the kingdom of God. This year, let's live on this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, great is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Chester, Mendham, Long Valley, Randolph, me, my home, my heart, as it is in heaven. Friends, what you hear Jesus saying in that window that we talked about earlier will impact what you think, who you think Jesus is today. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus has really, really, really good news for you. Now repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Live like it.